Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Saturn Returns with me, Kagi Dunlop. This is a podcast that aims to bring clarity during transitional times where there can be confusion and doubt. Today I am very excited to share with you this spectacular episode with the one and only Zach Bush. I have wanted to get Zach on this podcast forever. But fortunately, as fate would have it, one of my dear friends has been working with him. And so I asked her to put in a word and he came over to the flat whilst he was visiting London. And, you know, he didn't disappoint. Zach is a very unique, exceptional character. He spent many years as a conventional doctor specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology and hospice care. But he became a little bit disillusioned with the state of Western medicine and began taking his own approach, studying the body's microbiomes in relation to health, disease and food systems. In this episode, Zach takes us on a spectacular journey. It's quite meditative the way he speaks. And I have heard him talk before when he just kind of goes and flows on a subject and he's so wise and knowledgeable that it's it's quite overwhelming at times so I suggest listening a couple of times and we've actually had to break this conversation into two parts because there was just so much wisdom in it but he invites us to contemplate the strong connection between birth and death this kind of cycle that is very very much intertwined with Saturn returns it's a big theme of the Saturn Returns course, which is now available, this idea that actually we go through sort of multiple deaths and rebirths, and that's part of the cycle and season of life. And if we look at nature, we can see that reflected at us. He also delves into the concept of our infinite nature and challenges our limited perceptions of time and existence. It's very, very macro, but it's also dealing with a lot of personal issues and he shares some of his extraordinary encounters with past relatives that highlight the infinite aspects of our being. He goes on to explain that acknowledging this infinite essence is how we can all become inspired to live with purpose and fully embrace the present moment. And when he talked about purpose and presence, I just felt so lit up. And I think he has this ability to really command people with the way he talks and you know there are a few people that I know or that I'm aware of that I truly believe are going to change the world and I think that Zach is doing that and he's going to continue to do it so it's a real honor to have him on the show and I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Some of the themes that really stood out for me in this conversation that relates to the Saturn Returns course that we have launched are these themes around death and rebirth. This is a very, very big Saturnian principle. And so in the course, we go through how to let go of past versions of self. There is a fire ritual exercise. And I think it's really important that we allow ourselves the space to grieve things, to let things go. I always sort of equate this to nature, how nature works in seasons. And we work in the same way as well. We just have to kind of adjust that framework. We also touch on internal family systems therapy in this part of the course and going through our upper limits. There's a meditation around that so we can kind of reach that next destination point and stop holding ourselves back from the things that we wish to achieve and to realize. If this sounds interesting to you, you can head to saturnreturns.co.uk and the course is available there to purchase. And I hope you enjoy it. I would love to hear your thoughts if you are doing the course currently. I love hearing the feedback from you all and getting the testimonials so yeah I can't wait to see what you guys think Zach welcome to the Saturn Returns podcast I'm so happy to have you here today how are you I'm so good and so glad to be with you I'm thrilled to have the opportunity for the conversation and be with your audience well, thanks for coming because where are you based? You're based in, you just told me Virginia. Planet Earth, yeah. Planet yeah, Earth, yeah. All <laughs> most over the place. of the time. I'm all over the place, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I have a home in Virginia in the countryside there. It looks a lot like the British countryside, actually. 
Um, and uh, that has been my kind of home base for the last 20 years or so. My my son and I, and, and with the help of much of my extended family, built a log home there in the woods on six acres of, of woods there. So it's a haven and a bit of my my journey expressed there in architecture. So I designed that home and spent a lot of years, 10 years building that and honestly still kind of needing to do more building on that. Not quite done, but but it's one of those creative projects that's been a joy for me, but uh, I'm not home anymore. I, was, I think I was home about 20 days last year. So I, I just travel a lot these days. My kids are grown up and it's freed me up to be really in a state of freedom. I've changed my relationship to self pretty deeply over these last couple of years, which has increased my state of freedom uh, deep, further. And so I'm just really enjoying this, like being able yeah. to meet you and drop in and be completely present and then keep keep the wings flapping. Freedom sounds like something that you've talked about a lot. And I want to get into that and your sort of journey of self-discovery. But for the audience that doesn't know, would you be able to explain a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah. Um, I mean, the public historically has kind of known me as a medical doctor. I was trained in Western medicine, but before that I was going into engineering and then took a hard left turn when I had decided to take a year off from my university program because of heartbreak. I had my first girlfriend and she was kind of cheating on me throughout the relationship. And so kind of this stuttering, oh, no. increasing heartbreak that at only at 18, 19 years old, can you be this dramatic in life? But I was like, so heartbroken by the whole thing. I was like, I need to take a year off and find myself. And, and so in, in a melodramatic fashion, decided to take that year off and went to the Philippines. So that's what brought you to the Philippines. It yeah, was heartbreak. heartbreak. I mean, we'll get into it, but that was a huge transformational kind of awakening. Oh gosh, yeah. And the and the heartbreak was too. I, I had a series of pretty inside the box very conservative Christian worldview on value systems and ethics growing up. Grew up in a little church. My dad was one of the elders in the church that I grew up in. We didn't have a pastor, so all the elders kind of shared the teaching there. And so it was a very academic or intellectual approach to to spirituality and religion, I guess. But we studied, you know, each book of the Bible would take us a year to get through a single book because each verse was kind of broken down into the Hebrew or the Greek. And we'd study the, the etymology of the, the meaning and all this. And so I had this really inside the box belief of like, well, you just, you know, stay a virgin and you're married to God basically until you get married and then you have kids. And, you know, it's very super tra traditional, if you want to call it that, uh, but very conservative worldview. And then met this girlfriend, had never had a girlfriend before for that reason. It's kind of undateable because I was waiting for angels to show up and show me my wife. And, <laughs> and so, and I was excruciatingly shy. I was, oh my gosh, to give you a sense of how invisible I was to the world at this point, I graduated high school in the same town I grew up in Boulder. So I was born and raised in Boulder, Colorado, all the way through public school, uh, kindergarten through high school. and. On the day of graduation, I'm getting off the stage with my diploma in my hand, and this young girl comes up and she's like, "Hey, I'm I'm Kelly. Who are you? I haven't met you before." I'm like, "Kelly, we've been in, together in school since kindergarten. Like, we just graduated. You don't even know my name. Like, I couldn't believe it. Like, my locker throughout high school was like five lockers down from her. I just like that was like one of those moments in life where it's like, holy smokes, I'm like on a different." dimension than all these other people around me. Like I am just unseen. And so that was getting most of my, my high schooling. But in my senior year, I, I dropped in with a girlfriend for the first time and she was completely the opposite of me. And she was like hell bent to like break my Christianism and break my ethics and everything else. And uh -oh. so <laughs> it wasn't just heartbreak. It was soul break really, because the journey with her was took me on a journey of frailty and a, a journey into realizing how how much I would compromise of myself and my value systems in pursuit of love. Mm -hmm. And so the the heartbreak of that relationship really wasn't like she didn't love me or things like that, like had to do with, deal with that a little bit, but it was deeper of like, oh my God, I held these value systems and this relationship that at any point in that I could have said, this is not going to be like a forever situation. She really doesn't respect me. She doesn't 
and she was like I said, kind of cheating on me throughout it. So that that journey was really one of looking at uh, a divorce from self. You know, was was what occurred during that relationship because of the self abandonment, self abandonment, the effort to please someone else, the effort to serve someone else over myself. You know, and try to feel accepted. All those things crept in in ways that I hadn't expressed in my life before. I was. I had this little crew of friends that I'd grown up with and it was like me and five other guys and we were all extraordinarily weird, quirky, nerdy people. I spent all my junior high and high school years under cars in the garages, working on vehicles and restoring classic cars. And so I was just like a greasy, you know, wrench turner kind of blue collar kid. And we loved it. We we loved each other. We loved the journey of adventure, building stuff. I was constantly building. I learned how to build houses. I learned how to build cars. I learned how to do all that with that crew. We went through Boy Scouts together, and we just were so tight. They still are some of my best friends today, you know, half a century later. So it's like one of the best things that could have happened to a kid happened to me, where I just had this really, really foundational group of friends that were kind of unflappable and but the relationship kind of threw you off. And then this thing came along and pulled me off those friendships, pulled me mm -hmm. off of, you know, all, all my attention turned to this thing because the world has showed me this model of you serve this more than anything else. Mm -hmm. If you're in partnership, that is your priority and, and you sacrifice everything for that. And I got to see what I sacrificed and that I sacrificed, you know, communication and relationship to my my parents and family because they didn't didn't approve of that situation she didn't fit into their paradigm of a good you know person or girlfriend for me and so it distanced me from my family distanced me from my friends because I was putting so much energy into that that partnership belief system and so that whole thing even though it was a relationship that last, lasted probably 10 months less than a year it really just destroyed much of the fabric of what I had built in the years before that. But you were, you were so young. Yeah, but really freaking earnest. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> ridiculously I'm earnest this kid. Like, you this day I'm ridiculously it, earnest. It takes most people about 30 or 40 years to go. Oh, well, I think I've I been self-abandoning. I I was yeah. absolutely that kid. I was like, so took it so seriously. And so so seriously that you took a year out. Oh, yeah. Once went it, to the it, Philippines. Because I needed to find myself again. And that was the realization of like, and it was actually in church one day after the breakup and everything else that I was like if I compromised myself that much for that then who am I and I came home from church ate lunch maybe an hour after making this pronouncement to God that you know I'm going to dedicate a year of my life to finding myself or you just show me the path kind of thing and the phone rings and it's an aunt of mine that I vaguely knew um, and she was calling to talk to my dad or something and and I was the one to answer the phone. I was like, hey, what are you up to? I was like, well, I'm going to take a year off. And like, what do you want to do? I was like, well, I think, you know, vaguely I just you know, want to be in service and maybe in service to a spiritual pursuit and all this. She's, and she says, well, why don't you just come to the Philippines and birth babies? I, you know, I'm running this international midwifery clinic and we need help all the time. And I was like, I don't know anything about any of the words you just said, but that sounds interesting. And it sounds I'm like coming. we travel. And she's like, Oh, well, you come and just live in, and stay in the Philippines for six months. So I'm like, all right. So I worked busting tires in a tire company, discount tire company for six months to make enough money to get over there and support myself through that journey and all that. So that was my, my year 19 was, was kind of going on that journey and exploration over there. And that was quite a aha moment for you in your whole awakening, actually yeah, being, changed, seeing, changed everything. seeing yeah. people, more children being born because... I guess what's unique about you is you've had the experience of that and then a lot of experience at the end of life. What yeah. has that kind of taught you about? Those were the bookends for sure. So mm. I, my medical journey was long. So I, when I decided I was going in, into medicine, um, I came back, switched out engineering, went to pre-med. Uh, pre-med is not a degree, so you, it's more of like a minor, but you declare pre-med, then a, some sort of major. And I ended up with a Spanish literature major, so I studied Spanish literature and, and medicine. 
with the idea of initially that I'd be a nurse or something like that because I didn't think I was a good student and hadn't been a good student historically. I was, and about a year or so in, there was a new field emerging, which was the nurse practitioner and physician assistant programs. And that started opening up my mind of like, oh, I could do something a little bit more advanced degree. And all I knew about myself was good with my hands. I could build houses and cars and all that. And so I figured if I was going to go in medicine, I'd probably be using my hands. And so... Um, so that was the idea. So I just went down the PA route for a period of time and to pay myself through college, I was working in landscaping a lot and also in construction, but I was on a, a big landscaping job one day and a, a sprinkler main had broken at a golf course that my company was taking care of. And so we had dug this like 10 foot hole out of mud to get down to this sprinkler main. So I was literally like head to toe covered with mud with one of my best friends. He's a paramedic and, and working with the landscaping company. And we're talking about my future career. And he's like, you know, you should just do medical school uh, because it's like only another year or something from your PA training and all that. And I was like, okay. That, that was like the extent of my information, my decision-making. What I didn't realize is I just signed up for 17 years of <laughs> training in academic pursuits that, that I could not have imagined at the time. And so it was a very long journey into the MD world. I didn't get into medical school the first year that I applied. Uh, so I did a bunch of volunteer work and eventually got into medical school. And then medical school, like pretty much week one, I suddenly realized I was going to be good at this thing. And Why? Uh, I'm very visual learner or visual experiential mind. And on the first day of med school, started gross anatomy and so started dissecting a human body and on that journey realized, oh my gosh, I'm, I get this whole thing. And suddenly the biochemistry, cell biology, everything that I had struggled with in my undergrad pre-med stuff suddenly started to, to take three-dimensional shape instead of be this abstract stuff I was memorizing. I suddenly realized I was going to have a, a three-dimensional system that I could learn, and it immediately just changed everything, and I honored pretty much everything in medical school for four years. I just couldn't miss. It felt like I just got everything on a level I had never gotten anything before in some ways. And that was, that moment for you was when you were doing the sort of anatomy and seeing things. Why did that have such an effect, particularly? It, it, I think it was similar to my journey with watching the, the first babies that I birthed. Um, the first baby I birthed alone was in the back of a, a van in the Philippines. I was, it was like three o'clock in the morning and this woman had shown up on the doorstep of my aunt's house and the doorbell rang. Somebody rang the door and ran off and left this woman standing at the door hemorrhaging and she couldn't talk. She had been born with pretty significant brain injuries and, and cerebral palsy kind of stuff. And so she was pretty handicapped herself and probably didn't realize she was pregnant, didn't have much cognition, understand what was going on, but she was hemorrhaging in kind of a medium term pregnancy. And so just put her in the van and my aunt was driving to a hospital that was about 30 minute drive away. And so I'm in the back with this woman and I'm trying to like change towels and control the hemorrhaging situation without any knowledge of really what to do. And then, you know, moments into the drive, this this tiny little infant that was born into my hands, and it was it was probably two pound little infant, tiny, tiny, tiny thing. The whole thing fitting on the palm of my hand, really, and uh, blue, blue, and kind of at night, the flashing of street lights, kind of coming through the windows of the van and everything else. And I'm just staring down at this little miracle of life, and it, it suddenly takes a breath after a couple minutes. Assumed it was dead. And it suddenly took a breath. And so then I'm, my aunt had been kind of talking me through it because I'm like freaking out in the back of this van in, in the first place. And so she was trying to do her best to talk me through it. And and then it took a breath and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's alive. What do I do? And and she just very calmly was like, you know, just hold it, keep it warm. And, and so I'm holding this thing between my two hands and feeling a heartbeat through that tiny little frail body. And it was beyond miraculous. It was the most is the closest I had come to touching source energy because there was so much energy in that tiny, near lifeless little biology. And we got to the hospital. I'm sure it died a couple of days later, but it stayed alive long enough and maybe came into this world in part to 
to change my life and change my sense of self because I couldn't look at myself anymore with the same sense of passiveness, I guess, after that moment, because I realized this is what I come from too. And, and so the, when I started at Gross Anatomy, the, the woman's body that I was dissecting was in her 80s. And so you're seeing life on kind of both sides of the scale from that infant to this elder. And she was tiny, also a tiny little frail body. And you know, the first incisions that we were making were into, into that body pretty quickly got into the, the chest and torso. And when you see a human heart for the first time, it kind of does the same thing to you as seeing an infant and just like a uh, sudden sense of source energy and and just the miracle of, of a body. Uh, the heart's such a, an intricate, you know, cathedral of space. And the the nuances of the muscle that creates that heart is uh, really dauntingly miraculous. And so I think at that point, I understood that I would be not only understanding a three-dimensional structure, but it was a three-dimensional structure that held something infinite within it and was designed to hold the infinite. And that, I, I believe, is kind of the journey that we're all on in this life. You can mm -hmm. do it through medicine in kind of a very concrete fashion, but whatever background you have, whatever journey you put together, whatever relationships you call into your life, you are on a mission to discover the hallowed experience of being a biologic vessel that can hold the infinite and to hold energy itself. Seems quite unique to you, though, from what I'm hearing, that your spirituality and science are so interconnected and that, that those journeys were very intertwined from the beginning. Would that be fair to say? They were very intertwined from the beginning, but um, it got beat out of me a bit during you know, the next studying 10 years. Of... In what way were they beaten out of you? Well, it's a multifaceted approach that the current education system uses to drum out the miraculous of all of us. Um, you know, I think when we all start school, when we're four or five years old, we're so connected to the infinite nature of everything. There's a whole universe happening around you that doesn't have to do with the biologic, you know, three-dimensional reality you're in. And I remember being a four-year-old child and I had these two imaginary friends and, you know, I was pretty isolated just because of my upbringing and everything else and uh, grew up in a pretty impoverished area and, and government housing and Section 8 kind of thing. And that other world was with me for probably until I was six, seven years old and then it started to fade. And a lot of that fading, I think, comes because you're in school and being drilled into you and the whole metrics of success are in the three-dimensional reality. And it's very quickly that it's not acceptable to talk about imaginary friends or, you know, any of this other kind of invisible world or realm or that is visible to you isn't acceptable to the world. Uh, parents in a very subtle way beat that stuff out of you like, oh, well, that's cute when you're a kid, but, you know, that stuff's not real, you know. Mm -hmm. And so through our mistakes as parents and through our education system were very quickly taught to tune out that invisible realm that's perhaps more real than the reality we, we now find ourselves in. What has your journey been like to reconnect to that world? Well, those are some brushstrokes that, you know, happened with that, the Philippines and then medical school as a whole. And then as I got into medical school, uh, clinical rotations in the third and fourth year of medical school, you start doing clinical rotations through all the specialties. And I start to get exposed to death for the first time in my life at that point. And um, years later, I would, my third subspecialty in medicine would be hospice care. And, and so it was interesting that I started in birth and then eventually over a 17 year you know, journey through academia, end up at, at hospice and end of life care uh, because I was seeing the same miraculous stuff there and it drew me in uh, and I was first exposed to it in depth in the ICUs um, with people you know dying under very critical acute and chronic illness and all of that and started to get to see death on a near daily basis in the ICU setting and that started to again peel back the veil on the other side of you know this biologic life and again struck with 
just the irony that we put so much weight on the importance of, you know, a 70, 80 year journey, if we're lucky in these bodies, thinking that that's what life is, when in fact, there's so much evidence, if you've ever seen a child born, and then imagine that child being self-organized in the womb of a woman. That, that's the biggest miracle that we've ever witnessed in science is that a single cell can suddenly proliferate into 70 trillion cells. 70 trillion is a number that's very hard to imagine. That's you know, 70,000 million <laughs> or 70,000 billion. And so you get just this unbelievable uh, complexity that then organize itself in a three-dimensional environment into a body that's got 10 toes, 10 fingers, and this extraordinary heart that beats in the middle of all of it. And so that, that, that can occur out of space, literally, because the womb is just a potential you know, field. And each cell that uh, comes out of that ovum, out of that egg, has no information into it as to what it's going to become. Every cell that develops is just pluripotent. It can become a liver or a kidney or whatever it is. And it just happens to line up in a certain space where it says, oh, I'm supposed to be a kidney cell. But that message of I'm supposed to be a kidney cell isn't predetermined. It's something that it discovers in the three-dimensional development of movement and into this How? space. This is diving into physics rather than than biology at this point in the how, but there's a, a grid of energy behind every living thing that holds the template of its three-dimensional form. And that grid is held in the electromagnetic field, which is 99.999% of everything. So this table right here where the chair I'm sitting on, 99.999% back And you and me. What's that? And you and me as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you're mostly vacuum space right now, and you were completely vacuum space before you started to self-organize a body. And so when you're vacuum space, you're not empty, you're actually extremely full. <laughs> the densest thing in the universe is vacuum space that holds the electromagnetic field. And it's so much more dense than, than the physical expression of nature that it's mind-blowing. Like, again, these are numbers that you can't really wrap a human brain around. But if you were to take all of the physical matter of the universe, so every star, every planet, every galaxy, and our estimate of number of galaxies in our universe just skyrocketed with, with the new James Webb telescope. We went from thinking maybe there was a couple billion to realizing there's two, at least two and a half trillion galaxies, each one having 10 billion stars, each one with so many, the scale of the universe. So you take all of that physical matter and you push it into one cubic centimeter. Current estimates is that that's a number with like a one with something around 86 zeros after it. It is a huge number. But if you then take one cubic centimeter of space that just has the electromagnetic field, it's a vacuum, no physical structure in it, and it just has the electromagnetic field in there, compared to all of the physical structures in the universe, that's one to 86 zeros, that one cubic centimeter of space has one to the 94 zeros after it density or or gravitational force and so vacuum is exponentially by billions of fold <laughs> it is so much more dense than anything else when you consider its gravitational mass and so it literally is the thing that allows physical structure to self-organize into a star or into a planet or into a human body and so bizarrely your template was a grid within the womb of your mother. And when biology started to express itself there and you start to see this proliferation of cells, they all know exactly where to go and what to become because it's writ in this electromagnetic field that says in this space, in this time gravity bending moment of a human life coming together, this energy field is gonna express human and it becomes human. And it's not even written in the genetics, which is very bizarre because we think about ah, 23 chromosomes from mom, 23 chromosomes from dad, we got 46 chromosomes and that must spell human. But it turns out that the human genome, the same genes just reorganized into 178 puzzle pieces and then put back together will form a pig. And so you can be pig or human depending on the electromagnetic field in which the genetics line up and in which it, it will become. And so it's... 
it's a very bizarre thing that the intention for life lies within the physical plane of physics rather than the biology and biology self-organizes around it. And that might sound pretty esoteric and weird. And how could you possibly prove that? And, and again, my medical career kind of gave me the opportunity to see both ends of the spectrum, mm -hmm. which is, wow, that, that child, two pounds in my hand, formed spontaneously in the womb of its mother around some sort of a very structured electromagnetic field. And then I got to start seeing death. And when you see death, it's very common that these people are letting go of the body. The heart stops, brain activity stops, the person's dead. And then we do a whole bunch of chemical intervention and electrical intervention to restart that heart and get them back in the body. And when they come back into the body five minutes later, 10 minutes later, they'll tell you where they went and they'll tell you what they saw and you know, traveled the world or in many cases they travel through the cosmos during those few minutes, not tied to a human body. And the stories are magnificent. They're beautiful. They taught me many, many different possibilities of, of life in the cosmos, but deeper, the deepest mystery in it for me was at no point did they come back into that human body and, and let me know that there was some other identity. The whole time they were dead and gone from the body, they still had the same identity. They knew they were They them. knew who they were. And they knew their relationships to other souls. And so the fact that we can carry our self-identity into a human body and then exit the human body with that identity unperturbed mm -hmm. is just this incredible body of evidence of, oh my gosh, we are an infinite structure mm -hmm. of energy. And at this moment, we decided to express human and we did that for a moment. And so that's been the love affair, I guess, that I've had for a lifetime now of just like falling in love with the fact that I am here right now. And uh, just had a lovely couple hours on the trains getting back down here to London and watching the English countryside going by and uh, fell in love with the dog rose. Didn't know what a dog rose was until this morning. And I was with Jess Abbas with Farmers Footprint in UK. And I took a picture of this rose because it was just blowing my mind not so much the rose but the leaves behind it were so electric green they're brand new leaves and the contrast between this you know pinkish red rose with this technicolor green was so dumbfounding and I took a picture of it and showed it to Jess over breakfast and and she's like oh yeah that's a dog rose and it's it was a striking moment because the beauty of that in a word called dog rose ties me back to my home in Virginia where one of my favorite trees is the dogwood. On on the subject of what you experienced when people were passing, mm -hmm. going into whatever they were going next into, could you share one story? Because <laughs> you said that there were um, like so many stories of people having similar experiences of traveling through the cosmos and stuff like that, but was there any one particular one that stood out to you? Uh, um the one that stands out in my mind the most is, is the most intricate and difficult long story to tell in some ways. So I hesitate to dive into that long story in some ways, but um, I'll try to share an abbreviated version of it maybe because uh, it's very near and dear to my heart. Uh, I, I lost my, my dear grandmother who was kind of, has been the closest relative to me in my lifetime. She really, from an early age, really saw me for who I was and, and really encouraged me to be the biggest version of myself, which wasn't kind of the tenor of, of most of my experience through life. Most people that meet you or most family that we quote unquote come from, I think as humans, we tend to be afraid of being bigger than our, than our role, you know, and being your fullest, biggest version of yourself is not a popular, you know, thing that you're encouraged into in this world. And we really are taught to fit in rather than be self. And uh, she was really the opposite of that. And when I lost her, I felt like I'd really lost a huge role model in my life and, and lost the capacity to be visible to one of my dear family members and be seen. And within like two weeks of her passing, I was backstage and about to walk on, on give a talk and I heard this woman's voice and I was like that sounds like my grandmother and I look out around the corner and I thought it was my grandmother standing on stage and white hair and her haircut and everything else as I'm just kind of seeing her from behind was like all on all, all my grandmother and I sat there in awe and then she happened to turn slightly so I could see her face and I realized it wasn't my grandmother but it was a you know, beautiful elder woman and and 
she came off stage after giving one of the most amazing talks I'd ever heard. She gave the most beautiful talk on bees and uh, the role of the honeybee in, in, in human nature. And I was so dumbstruck by the talk, but I was more dumbstruck by like, this is like some sort of reincarnation my grandmother feels like. And so she came off stage and I gave her this big hug and said, I don't know who you are and you don't know who I am, but I think we're supposed to be together and I'm going to go find you after my talk. So I walked down on stage, gave my talk and the whole time thinking about her and get off stage and go find her at the back of the auditorium. We sat together for six hours in the back of that auditorium and talked for hours and then went out to dinner that night and ended up very quickly kind of semi-adopting this woman as my new grandmother. And we spent eight years together and uh, she just passed away about eight months ago. But she had the most incredible death experience and it happened um, when she was 58, not 86 or whatnot. And she died in a sweat lodge ceremony um, in a Native American ceremony in the United States uh, down in the New Mexico area had a massive heart attack right at the end of a sweat lodge ceremony. She was getting out of the sweat lodge and suddenly had crushing chest pain and and collapsed and uh, was pulseless. And the people around her tried to start CPR and all this. And eventually the EMS got there and, and the paramedics were doing you know, start compressions, all this, and pretty much declared her dead. And then the chief of the tribe that she was with uh, walked in into the situation and started blowing the easel, e- eagle whistle in her face. And the eagle whistle in, in this ceremonial tradition is to orient the soul to return to the body or to find its next mission. And so he was blowing the eagle whistle in her face and she came slamming back in the body and, and heart started back up. And she really had very little repercussions from a very prolonged heart attack and pulseless state of being dead. And the journey that she had in those, you know, 10 minutes or so without a pulse and, and outside the body uh, took her into the cosmos. And the experience on her side was that she suddenly was falling off the planet. For one second, she was reaching for this little tree to balance herself. This young man was helping her, realizing that she was in some sort of acute distress. And then she collapsed and went blank. And next thing she felt and experienced was she was falling off the surface of the planet. And her body suddenly turned in, you know, like into a flying vessel kind of thing and she's speeding through the cosmos and out of the gal- out of the star system and galaxies are zipping by and and eventually gets you know through the speeding journey of the cosmos comes into some sort of star system and then two planets in front of her and comes in there's this kind of black void looking thing in the middle of one of the planets and she seems to be being pulled towards that and gets pulled down in a bit of a vortex and now speeding towards the surface of this planet and is set down gently on this cliffside in this huge cave is in front of her. And this green, verdant, jungle-like environment. And she's on this cliffside and, and this cave in front of her. And she is standing there just taking in the beauty and, and awe-inspiring scene that she's in. And her son walks out of the cave who had died a few years earlier in a tragic car accident. And he had been like kind of the apple of her eye. They had been really spiritually close compared to and really clicked hard and uh, his loss in her life was one of the just un, unhealed wounds and he comes walking out in physical form knew exactly who he was gave her a big hug she could smell his his body odor and his essence and he was just every bit the physical being that he had been in in life with her and he said i'm so glad you've come i i invited you here so that you could see that I picked this path and I, I left on purpose and I'm here because this was my next opportunity and I'm expressing myself here on this planet and I get to do what I love most, which is be a part of the creation of, of, of botanical life here. And so I'm helping hybridize plants and I'm working on creating a beautiful place and planet and I want to just take you in and do tea ceremony. And tea, she had been a tea monger. She had created her own tea company importing tea out of India. And so he takes her into the cave and the cave's like, her description of this goes on for hours because it was such an experience. But the short thing is the cave was covered in like some sort of glow worm or some sort of insect that's glowing. And it was like walking into a star field in this dark cave and they walk down uh, this passageway into this big kind of domed room that's in this cosmic expression of light. 
and in the middle is a little fire burning and he's got this whole tea service laid out for her and he, he serves her tea and they talk story and he's telling her all about the excitement that he has. And then they finish their tea ceremony and he's like, I, I, I want to, I'm so glad you came. I, I, I just wanted you to know that I was well and, uh, you know, I'm excited for your next chapter. And she's like, well, I'm, I'm going to stay here. I don't want to leave. I've been missing you more than anything else in life. And he's like, oh, no, you, you're not supposed to stay here. I just wanted you to come by and see that I'm doing well and that I'm thriving. And and she's like, well, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. I, I, I haven't even recovered from my heartbreak of losing you once. I can't lose you again. And all. she's like trying to rationalize staying on this planet with this guy. And and he's walking her out. And then suddenly she's falling off the that planet and back out into space. And she's traveling off the planet at a slower speed and then seems to come to a standstill. And, and her body starts getting super cold. And she feels like she's going to freeze and die and just be frozen in space forever. And then the second planet comes into view and it starts exploding with these extraordinary crystalline fireworks. And as the planet comes nearer, she realizes that it's not like sparks from fireworks, that it's actually these crystalline bees. And each spark is another bee. And these bees start communicating with her telepathically or something. And they're explaining the role of bees among life forms throughout the cosmos and specifically for humanity, why the bees are here and how they're helping us move uh, into our full expression of love and sense of community and how to build community around the concept of love and beautiful messaging from the bees. And then uh, the planet suddenly is distancing itself and she's back out in black space and it's freezing cold and is in terror because she can't move now and she's like frozen and suspended in black space and doesn't know where or how to go from here. And then she hears this distant sound and starts just putting her entire intention to move to that sound because it's like the only thing that seemed relevant at that moment. And so she's moving towards that sound and then suddenly opens her eyes and the chief is blowing the eagle whistle in front of her face and she's back in the body again. And that was 58 years old and Within a couple of weeks, she was invited to do an art show that took her through Japan, which she had never been to. And uh, she injured herself on the first day in Japan and ended up uh, in the hands of a practitioner there in Japan that did a traditional methodology of acupuncture called Hoshindo, which is an ancient practice that predates the steel needle. And so before the needle, acupuncture was done with bee stingers. And so she was getting all this bee therapy and hadn't put it together with her near-death experience at this point. And uh, towards the end of the week of getting treatment, this woman told her, you know, um, I look forward to having you back. You'll be back in a few weeks and you're going to begin a three-year journey of training of Hoshindo. And she was like, I, I'm an artist. Like, I'm not supposed to do this. And she's like, no, you are. You are. And I was told 25 years ago that my last student would be from the United States and would carry Native American blood. And, and here you are. And you're my last student and voice her name is voice sterling jones voice went back to the u.s um, thinking that she would never be back again and then within weeks like all the doors were closing all the doors were life pointing back to japan so near 60 years old she packs up and moves to japan and spends a few years and becomes the very first non-japanese sensei of hoshindo and carries bee energy in a way that few people have on this planet with so much information from the bees and in constant communication with the bees. And so that's a dramatic that is <laughs> afterlife a journey story. that shows that our souls are being prepared all the time for the next chapter. And sometimes that's in the body, sometimes it's outside the body, sometimes it's on this planet, sometimes maybe it's off this planet. But that energy form that we were talking about that can express a human body in the womb of a woman is an energy field that is, it cannot be destroyed. And it, it just moves through the, the cosmos, through this universe, seemingly on deep purpose and intention every moment it's organized. And the first law of thermodynamics in physics, one of the most proven scientific concepts we have is that energy cannot be destroyed or created it can only change form mm -hmm. and so this is why you're here right now is because you chose this human physical form and the beauty that you hold within your physical vessel is an expression of a beauty that 
is probably beyond human comprehension that is held at that soul vibration level, that electromagnetic field that we would call a soul is self-organizing, not just a human body, but a cosmic you know, journey that may last for eons for all I know. And it keeps organizing physical experiences around it. Maybe you've been a star, maybe you've been a planet, maybe you've been a fish. I don't know what you've chosen to manifest, uh, but in some ways it sounds like you know kind of the the karmic reincarnation story but i i see that differently i don't you know, reincarnation sounds like you're kind of stuck in some sort of path and in the experiences of so many near death experiences that i've seen and all that it's it's much more freedom in it than the concept of reincarnation would suggest that planet earth is like our zone mm -hmm. <laughs> and and i just think it's probably a lot bigger than that with 2.5 trillion uh, cosmic destinations here in this, uh, just at the galaxy level, let alone the planets within those things. I think it's unlikely that an energy field would stay put in in one little tiny stardust spot called planet Earth. It's, but you did mention really. that when people had this experience that they still had that same sense of identity. Would you be able to expand on what your sort of definition of that identity is and how that was experienced when it wasn't or how it is experienced when it's not in the physical form because I think that's something people struggle with a lot today mm -hmm. I agree I think we've been devastatingly divorced from the understanding or experience of self and that's something that I think you know again takes us into an esoteric possibility of of the human journey here but uh, if we go back to that four-year-old self that I was, um, I was living in what many people as adults would consider a dream state in the sense that reality was extended beyond, you know, the physical plane and I could dream up anything and it could be real. And when you're four years old, you can literally be a pirate, you can be an astronaut, you can be absolutely anything second to second and there's absolutely no doubt in your mind. And that's what an indigenous elder recently told me, uh, the difference between dreams and realities, or the difference between your dreams and your reality that you're currently living in, is that there is no doubt in your dreams. And that's a pretty cool realization. You think back through the dreams that you regularly have, you might have fear, you might have many different emotions, but, but that, that possibility of, of insecurity or, you know, unsureness. Something is tall. Is, is only occurs in the human brain, you know, in this three-dimensionality. That's where we develop uh, insecurity and and a, a lack of self and do you think Do you think it's part of our path in this material realm to overcome those insecurities, to realize our purpose? Yeah, uh, my concept of purpose has changed quite a bit in recent years. I was just told that it was something I needed to go find, you know. And the more that I've been in my own bodily journey here and the more I'm exposed to, to other people's journeys, realizing that the purpose isn't something to be go found or pursued. Purpose, if it has a reality to it, is, is simply to be present, you know. And in being present you're aligning your biologic experience of a mind and a body and a heartbeat to this eternal energy force within you that we might call a soul or whatever it is, an electromagnetic field at least. And so when I am fully present and I can be distracted from present, I, I realize right now that I was distracted for a moment because I was living in a space of remembrance of voice and this you know, dear grandmother force in my life. And in just becoming present with you right now, the room shifts, my energy shifts. My reality has to now bend itself around this situation, which is I am here right now. Any relationships I've had in the past, any energetic experiences I have in the past can only distract me from right now. And when I do become present, I believe I become much more obviously beautiful to you and I be, you become much more obviously beautiful to me. Because it's it's suddenly that moment of like crystallization where it's like, whoa, I forgot how real you are right there because you're sitting right there and you're on that chair and you're in this room and we're in London and this is our reality right now. And so as you become present, you become omnipresent. You become much more capable of, 
of taking in information from vast spaces around you. That's purpose. That's it. Because in that space, I can now drop into my core and sense if I'm supposed to do something next or just continue to sit here. Mm-hmm. No emotion of my past is disrupting this moment right now. But if I sit here and allow my mind to wander even for a split second, I'll start remembering little traumas or frustrations or somebody hurt my feelings or you know, I got afraid I was going to get on the wrong train on the way here or whatever it was. Like Those things can creep back in so quickly when we allow our presence to move from core to the human mind to the human emotional field. And ultimately, I think that's what divorces ourselves from that original vibration, the original math, the thing that knit me together in the womb of my mother. That thing had no cancer in it. That thing had no autoimmune disease in it. That thing had no immune dysfunction in it. That thing had no depression. That thing had no anxiety. That thing was fully sure of self, fully aware of why it was picking this exact cosmic moment in the astrological field of all of the energy of the universe to manifest in my mother's womb in 1973 in Boulder, Colorado at 1.54 p.m. in the afternoon. Like I picked that moment because I was so sure that this was my manifestation now so that I would live out a life that some people would call purpose or, or I might call you know purpose, whatever it is. Since that moment of cosmic birth in my mother's womb, I was layered with many, many emotions and I started to, to remember emotions within my own epigenetics that I inherited from 40 generations before me such that I would become a biologic expression of 40 generations of trauma, heartbreak broken expectations, insecurities. That's what I was expressing by age seven. We store human emotions in the body and 4,000 years of Chinese medicine has detailed out exactly what type of emotions is stored exactly in what part of the body. Mm-hmm. Low back pain is, is you know, among the number one complaints of, of Western civilization worldwide. If you, if you become part of the Western economic model, low back pain is likely to occur in your life at some point because in that location you store financial stress and fear of wellness or health of your immediate family. And so when you develop back pain, it's not because you twisted wrong or you did this or you herniated a disc. The disc herniated because of the disconnect from the original information of what that shape of disc and how it was going to balance itself within the the time-gravity continuum of being a spine whatever it was, and it got disconnected from the information, therefore it dysfunctioned, and you now have back pain because you were holding an emotion in that space. And so for you and I to actually see each other, we would have to get into a discipline of being able to put a complete block on the entire epigenetic history of your human line and then come into coherence with the original math and trust that over the emotional state that we may have come into this conversation with. How do we do that? Practice. It is discipline. discipline. It It is practice, practice, practice coming into that. And all of us know what it feels like to be super present. A lot of us will get goosebumps if we're in one of those moments where we suddenly hear truth and it's like resonating with us. That's that's what it feels like to be coming from core. Coming from your core self feels like that goosebumpy moment where it's just like every fiber in your body is on and and responding into a, a note that's being struck in the universe, you know, at that moment. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes for a potent conversation. You know, all the, the thousands of podcasts that I've been on, it's striking that people will come back and tell me, oh my gosh, when you did this podcast, you said this thing. And they'll say something to me that they heard from me that I have literally just never said because they were tuned into an information stream that was them. And all that happened was I became so present in a conversation that I became a sounding board for their own truth. And they heard it, they thought from me, but they were literally just, it was coming out of themselves because they were so present in that moment. Yeah. And so this is the, the gift that we have in community is we can not only strike a tone and a note, we can create a, a cathedral in which everybody's notes can start to harmonize. Mm-hmm. And that we create this vortex of energetic rise. And for that, we're here on this planet right now. I believe there's 
a great expression of energy happening within the universe at this moment, at this unique, tiny little speck of reality that we call Earth. Never before have there been so many energy centers focused in that tiny little speck. Mm -hmm. And we burn bright. The vibration within a human being is the brightest thing within our cosmos. And let me explain what that means or how we would conclude that. But a green leaf out here on these trees outside the window, that's full of chlorophyll. That makes it green. Chlorophyll captures sunlight and puts it into a battery of two carbon molecules that, that are the perfect battery for energy in the universe. And so the double carbon bond stores solar energy or sunlight between two carbons that were, were uh, constituents of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere just moments ago. So chlorophyll is taking CO2 and building it into long chains of carbon that are called glucose or fatty acids, carbohydrates or fats to store light energy. Animal comes along, digests that chlorophyll, uh, digests all the fatty acids and and light energy with the glucose or whatnot, and then that courses into the the bloodstream through delivery by the liver, and then delivered out to every single human cell, for example. And then the human cells take in all of this potential light through glucose and fatty acids, and still can't do anything with it. So they have to pass it to the mitochondria, which are tiny little bacteria that are directly related to the chlorophyll in the plant. And so that the chlorophyll is a mitochondria inside a plant, our mitochondria inside a human. And this mitochondria breaks the long carbon chain apart to release CO2, but in so doing releases all the sunlight. And so there's a new re revelation going on in science right now that each human cell has about 200 mitochondria in it. Some cells like a neuron, which are really energy uh, demanding, have 2000 mitochondria within every single cell. And so these are cells that are like, you know, half the circumference of a human hair and it has 200 bacteria living in it. And those 200 bacteria are, are, are there just to, to release sunlight back into the system. And when you calculate how much light is released by these mitochondria that are literally cramming full every single cell of the human body, you realize that a cubic centimeter of that tissue or a cubic centimeter of mitochondria releases about 10,000 times more light than a cubic centimeter of the sun produces. So we're 10,000 times more efficient than a, than a star at producing light energy by being alive. And so if you had the right eyes to see by, we would be the most blindingly bright thing in the cosmos perhaps right now. And for that, we've been a beacon of energies from around the cosmos, I believe. And there's a whole lot of attention being paid to this little speck in the universe right now because the vibrational capacity of our planet right now, because of the humanity, because of the amount of biology on this planet right now, makes us a tuning fork for the entire universe, perhaps. And so the feeling that we have right now of being human is determining the vibration of a chakra center within the universe. Mm -hmm. And so when we sit here and run around with 8 billion people in fear of a virus and in guilt and shame over not doing some intervention that we're told we should do to prevent the death of our people around us, and we adopt this fear, guilt, and shame paradigm as our dominant emotion, we just changed the fabric of the universe. And, the, and, and that universe is now under great distress because one of its epicenters is in such cognitive dissidence with its reality that it can't hold together much longer. Mm -hmm. And so we see the sixth extinction unfolding, not because of you know oil and gas industry, but because all life right now is being pushed to its brink on this planet with its connection to source. Because we have adopted an emotional paradigm that is separating ourselves from the original math of being true, mm. of being fully on. Mm. There's a couple of things that you've mentioned here that I want to dive into. But the thing about light that you were just discussing, it reminded me, I was, I was listening to a podcast a few months ago and it was a man who had been in a plane crash. And he said that as it was sort of essentially being pulled apart and people around him were dying, that he could see the light coming out of them. And he said in his opinion of the experience, it was as if the light was their soul. And he said that some people's light was brighter than others. And he felt that that was depending on how they'd lived their life, which is obviously a very different 
take on it rather than a more scientific one, a more spiritual one. But I don't know, I feel perhaps they're interconnected. I hesitate to think that, you know, the the human judgment on whether it was a good life or a bad life would would correlate with the amount of light there. And f- for the reason that the human belief of good and bad is one of one of the probably most unreal things that we hold on to. Uh, it is very unlikely there's good and bad things in the universe. And I would liken this in, a bit to my scientific expertise in the microbiome. Uh, We now know that a human body is simply a vessel for millions of species to interact with a single neurologic system to create intelligence. Mm -hmm. Our intelligence comes from our biodiversity that the human anatomy is capable of holding. The human colon is now recognized to be the most complex ecosystem on the planet. And so this is the truth is that there is absolutely no good and bad bacteria within the microbiome. They all have a great sovereign purpose within the ecosystem of life. And for that, there'd be a human tendency to think that uh, that light that I'm seeing at the end of life, which I do think he saw, I think he saw light spectrum being admitted from these people. It's, I've heard stories like that before. One of the places that I think this happens is in, in military conflict. My brother was over in Iraq during the, the conflict there uh, 20 years back. And when you're in battle every day expecting to die, you get into these ecstatic states of existence and it's very difficult for soldiers to come back into the mundane reality where their life isn't on the line every day because suddenly everything seems dim and gray and lifeless because they were seeing the light within every being around them. So there's the thought of like, well, maybe we're just like having camaraderie or whatever it is as we march into battle. No, you're in this energetically heightened state because the possibility of letting go of that body in the next few minutes is very real. And therefore you are extremely present. And so on that plane crash down, everybody knows these are the last few breaths they are going to take and they become extremely present at that moment and light starts emanating from them. But rather than imagining the, the brightness of, of the spectrum he was visibly seeing with his human eye, you have to realize that each soul has a different geometry to it that allows my biology to express different than your biology. And so I had a specific resonance structure that allowed me to form a body around it. And in that resonance, I have different geometry. And so you can imagine this and one of the the visualizations or meditations that I love to teach is is called the anatomy of the soul. And and that anatomy of the soul is a, a, a long kind of journey up into your original math and into that, that experience of the geometry of self. And when I do that with a group of 30 or I've done it in, in groups of 900 people or whatever, and when you're doing that with a group of people, everybody sees different shapes. And it's so beautiful to me that you can go experience your own geometry and then bring that back into your reality of being a body and be like, this is this body is an expression of that complex geometry. And so what he was seeing at that moment was many different geometries that are going to interact with life, light phases in completely different ways. They're going to express different light. And so some of those that seem dim were likely in an ultraviolet field or simply mm-hmm. expressing light energy and vibration in a different frequency than than others. So they differ in color, they differ in, differentiate maybe in, in the perception of the amount of light, but in the, that's only in the visible spectrum. And so I think every soul is expressing itself in a vibrational experience that would be a time gravity kind of warp that would allow that energy field to exist. That energy field is going to be a different note, a different tone, a different color in every single iteration of life. Guys, I hope you're enjoying this incredible conversation with the one and only Zach Bush. As you can probably tell, I didn't have to say very much. I just sort of listened and let him take the stage, which suited me fine when you are in the presence of such a brilliant mind such as his. Some of the takeaways from the first half of this conversation was, you know, Zach is very unique in this intersection between science and spirituality, which you rarely see someone that's so knowledgeable about both fields, but also sees them as one of the same. And I believe that they are. I think, you know, the cosmos is such a a fascinating thing 
in the way that we understand it through a scientific viewpoint, but also the more spiritual realms. And I love how Zach manages to weave these two themes together so poetically and beautifully. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you could write us a review on Apple Podcasts or subscribe to the show. Or if you want to hear more from us, sign up to our newsletter. The link is in the show notes. And we will be back for part two with Zach Bush next week. Thank you so much, guys, for listening. As always, remember, you are not alone. And if you want to find out more about Saturn Returns, we have launched our website, which has some offerings online, which I'm super, super excited about. So if you want to check those out, head to www.saturnreturns.co.uk. People don't need to say www anymore, do they? But I'm old school. And I hope you enjoy the website and what we have to offer. And I will see you guys, or I will speak to you guys, or you will hear from me <laughs> next week and sending lots of love. <laughs>